Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. Well, strange days for everybody. We should point out we're recording this on Friday and we're social distancing. Yeah, it's pretty scary, isn't it? It is. It's, it's odd not being in the same room with you, but we all, all have to do our bit. How, how, are, you, how are you finding it? Um, I think it definitely takes some adjusting to, doesn't it? Yeah. You can sort of see that by the fact that for the first couple of days, you know, MPs were sort of trooping into Parliament and then rightly the government said, hang on a minute. We're, we're wanting to practice social distancing, so we've got to be much more. It's got to be much more sparsely attended. I'll tell you what I found quite upsetting. Yeah, that video of celebrities singing John Lennon's "Imagine." I haven't seen that. Oh, I, I, my my wish for you is that you don't watch it. It's incredibly cringeworthy. I'll tell you what. You know, I was thinking if if the John Lennon "Imagine" was the one that went viral, then it's, it should only be fair that a Paul McCartney song uh, should should go viral as well. And I wondered about. Um, do you remember the Frog Chorus? We all stand together. Well, that's good. That that would that would suit the we public sentiment. We all tra- stand together. Together, bomb, bomb. So I was thinking, who who have you got in your address book? You could rope in. We got Ronnie O'Sullivan. Yep. I've got Timmy Mallet's email address. Okay. That's not bad. So Ellie Goulding, should I get Ellie Goulding on? Yeah, I mean this. This is she we're almost there with beneath it beneath her pay grade, but <laughs> um, we're almost the there. The frog chorus is quite a good idea. Now, now you obviously don't have a school age child, but presumably Jean's nursery is shut down. Yeah, so so that's that's closed down. Um, and does he understand it? Not really. You know, he just likes it when we hang out so he's yeah. sort of happy but i'll tell you what i've been thinking about a lot is the the, the sort of long-term psychological effects on children there was something somebody put on facebook or twitter the other day saying that people the, the, these kids they won't remember much about the virus but they'll you know remember the the anxiety and the worry that was in households and you know what what you can do or, or not even answering that question but just saying yeah. do what you can to try and reduce that and he keeps he's you know, he's nearly four and he's going on about germs. He's, he comes in in the morning and goes, Daddy, Daddy, what are germs? What are germs? And then if he coughs, he says, have I got germs? So it's obviously yeah. going round in their brains. What about your lads? They're a bit older. Yeah, I mean, I think it's quite hard for them. I mean, Daniel is in year six, so that's the last year of primary school. We don't know whether he'll be able to go back to school. We hope he obviously will. Sam's in year four. It is quite a, a change and... um Let's see how the homeschooling goes. 
Well, on that subject, I don't know if you saw this. I'm a bit embarrassed. My wife tweeted it. I wrote out the alphabet and I thought I'll try and teach Jean the alphabet and I completely missed out the letter D. A, B, C, E. Yeah, yeah. That doesn't bode well, really, for how homeschooling is going to go. Should we should we talk about how we're thinking of handling this next period in terms of the podcast? Yes, look, why don't we? So we're we're still going to be here. I'm going to be here. Ed's going to be where yeah. he is, and and we we want to keep bringing you the podcast. Um, obviously, I think it would feel a little bit strange d- adopting the scattergun approach to topics that we usually do. I don't because... think we should describe our approach as scattergun. Scattergun is an insult, isn't it? I, I I meant it in a positive sense. I th- feel like you know we're we're right. very uh, we've got a lot of variety right, in okay. what we do. But you know, I was thinking about last week's episode, which I really enjoyed, which yeah. was the the live show we did about farming. I'm not sure that no. this week or next week, if it wouldn't feel odd of putting out an episode like that. So we're going to try and ref- reflect what is happening and maybe look at the way different countries and different people around the world are responding to it. And if you have any thoughts on on the way we can take things, we'd love to hear from you. As ever, you can email us, reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Yeah, look, I think that's true. There's also, we should say, a if you're looking for top quality entertainment, you've got a back catalogue of reasons to be cheerful brackets not scattergun close brackets uh and also now an increasingly rich variety of a cheerful book club i mean, I tell you what i think is important is is clearly there's a lot of focus on the sort of public health measures being taken here and elsewhere but i think thinking about how other countries as we as i'll explain in a minute are going to do this week the other things that other countries are doing to cope with the economic effects, the social effects of this crisis, I think we can definitely play a role in that, which is a bit like what we do on the podcast, isn't it? So, you know, that, that I think that yeah. I think that is an important thing that we can do. I think secondly, this is not for now, but it will it will become an issue later, is sort of what we learn about our society from the handling of this crisis. I and mean, one thing that already occurs to me is that, you know, this crisis has exposed the really big holes in our safety net. You know, the very, very poor level of universal credit, 70 quid, uh, same for statutory sick pay, the fact that so many people have no savings. Now, we knew those things, but I think they're coming into very, very sharp relief as we look at how we handle the fallout of this crisis. So I think focusing on some of the things that have been exposed about this in this crisis and, and how we can sort of fix them in the longer term, I think is also relevant. Sounds like a plan-ish. Yeah. yeah. Um, shall I say what we're talking about this week? Yes. This week we're talking about how governments respond to economic crises. It's obviously clear now that coronavirus represents a major economic crisis as well as a public health crisis as the requirements of social distancing hit our economy. The Chancellor has now announced significant support to help employees paying 80% of their wages. We'll be looking at some of the inspiration from that uh, and how countries around the world are dealing with the risks, as well as learning from people involved in the response to the 2008 financial crisis. We're talking to Jason Furman, a former economic advisor to Barack Obama, about lessons from 2008 and why the US government has chosen to give direct cash payments to Americans. 
We'll be talking to economics professor Berta Larsson about the Danish government's approach to avoiding unemployment, which has inspired, I think, the Chancellor's response. They quickly negotiated an agreement with employers and unions. And, and friend of the pod, Stuart Wood, Lord Wood, will be chatting about what it was like to be in Downing Street during the financial crisis and the lessons we can learn from the government's response to that. And then we, ha- we have a cheerful person. Now, this was recorded a few weeks ago. He's podcasting royalty. He's one of the QI elves from No Such Thing as a Fish. And he's written a tremendous book. It's sort of a post-apocalyptic thriller. I don't know um, if you, you, know, you could maybe read it and get a glimpse of what the future looks like let's hope not but it's a really great book i I read it on holiday and you know it's a cliche to say but i I could not put it down it's called the last day and joining us to talk about that and about no such thing as a fish we have andrew hunter murray What's your reason to be cheerful? I've been talking a lot, actually, on, on the subject to people in other countries, to my friend Malik, who is a, a scientist in the Swedish government. He's got lots of friends who work in chemistry, and he says that his friends are devoting lab time to making disinfectant for people. And I thought that, How that, that was great, just thinking about you know people doing what they can. I honestly think this is going to bring out the best in human nature, actually. I mean, OK, some people will say it'll bring out some bad sides, but I think I think it also brings out, by the way, this just key professions thing. People have been making this point online. You know, turns out the key professions aren't the sort of top 1%. The key professions are the nurses and the doctors and the teachers and, you know, the prison staff and all of those things that aren't the best rewarded professions. I think that's quite interesting. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Uh, Shall I tell you my reason to be cheerful? Yes. I think mine is slightly less sort of, um, well, I don't know. I, I don't want to do down my reason to be cheerful, but... I, you know, I think different few families go through different waves of anxiety in this process. And we were all cheered up. And, uh, you know, I may get some complaints here, but by the penguins let loose in the aquarium. I don't know whether people have seen the video. Oh, yeah, because it, it's, it's, it's great. Yeah. More than ever, we need uh, uh, cute animal videos. Basically, yeah. It's a real respect of whether it's penguins. I sort of got even more attachment to the dogs I see in the street um, now. Obviously, I keep my distance. So. <laughs> So to talk about what the lessons of the last financial crisis are and what's happening now, uh, I'd like to say that we're joined by Jason Furman, who was a top economic advisor to President Obama. He was deputy director of the National Economic Council from 2009 to 2013 uh, in the uh, midst of the financial crisis. Uh, and he was chair of the Council of Economic Advisors from 2013 to 17. And he now uh, is based at Harvard University. Thanks so much for joining us, Jason. Thanks for having me. Well, why don't we start by getting you to to tell us how, what you think the scale of the current crisis is compared to what we faced in 2008, what you faced with President Obama in 2008? The crisis we're facing now is the most rapid shutdown of global economic activity possibly ever. In 2008, the crisis unfolded over the course of two years. The housing bubble burst in 2006. There were financial tremors in 2007, Bear Stearns in February 2008, and Lehman Brothers in September of 2008. All of that is like it's happened in two weeks um, everywhere in the world. You've made us feel a lot better, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, look, you uh, let, let's come on to the implications of that. 
Um, you were advising uh, President Obama as he came to office during the 2008 financial crisis. In fact, um, you know, I think you recounted in a paper you did that, you, you know, you're meeting with him and other, his other top advisors just a few days after the presidential election. Tell us a little bit about what that was like at the time before we get onto the lessons of that crisis. The, you know, what was that was like at the time was, you know, in the campaign, he proposed a $50 billion stimulus plan. Then two months later, he said, you know what? Actually, it needs to be $150 billion. Our first meeting in the transition, actually, it needs to be $300 billion. We did a meeting in December, about a month after he was elected, and we decided it needed to be about $800 billion. And so you just, you know, as the crisis unfolded over two years, every time we met with him, we told him more was needed than the last time we had met with him. And what are the big lessons, before we come on to what should be done now, what is being done now, what do you think the big lessons of that crisis are in in retrospect? Well, I think one big lesson, and I think it's a lesson that's being learned now, and that makes me very encouraged, is that you want to stay as far ahead of something as possible. It's better to err on the side of big than small. You're rarely going to regret having done too much um, in a crisis. And if you end up regretting having done too much, what a wonderful thing uh, to regret. In this um, in this crisis, you, uh, I think a few weeks ago, uh, a couple of weeks ago, talked about sort of direct cash payments to um, to Americans, I think of a thousand a thousand dollars a person. It, it's it's hard to follow President Trump's sort of um, p- path on this, but but that sort of feels like where that that is now going to something like that is now going to happen in the U.S. Correct? Uh, it looks very likely that something like that's going to happen. And just to be clear about this, it's it's being talked about as a one-off. But if we are realistic with each other about how long this crisis is likely to last, it can't just be a one-off, can it? Uh, no, if the if the crisis lasts, absolutely. I think that's, um, you know, one of the really important lessons of last time also was that people tired of stimulus, they tired of emergency measures before they should have. Take um, unemployment insurance. We put in place an emergency extension of it when the unemployment rate first rose to 5%. Then it rose a lot. Several years later, it was still at 8.5%. And people said, you know what? This has been around too long. We don't need it anymore. And they got rid of it, even though the unemployment rate was incredibly high. That's a mistake we don't want to make this time. And so I personally think all the legislation should include in it triggers. Triggers that say, you know, if the unemployment rate is above such and such, say five and a half percent, these payments, these other emergency measures will automatically continue. But but just to be clear about this, Jason, you, we I mean, certainly the way we are thinking about it here is, and I'm sure in the States, you've got obviously, and I think you wrote, you, you gave an interview talking about this, you know, you've got millions of people in hospitality, driving taxis, restaurants, right across the economy, you know, who are going to basically not have any work. Um, I mean, this is, to, this is a replacement for their wages. That's the basic case for it. Is that right? The basic case, and I, and I want to come to that, You know, another part of my argument two weeks ago, which I strongly believe, is the response needs to be comprehensive. So this is one part of it. 
And we have ways of replacing people's wages, for example, unemployment insurance. The problem with unemployment insurance is the United States is a lot of people don't qualify for all sorts of reasons. And so the idea is to use whatever targeted programs we have, like programs for leave, programs for unemployment, programs for low-income households, food, but then in addition to all of that, do this broad brush because I'd rather you know, get money to some people that don't need it than miss out on millions or tens of millions of people that do need it. Now, a number of countries, including Denmark and, and now Britain, have opted for a policy of wage replacement. In our case, the government has said it will pay 80% of salaries of those who don't have any work. W- what do you think of that uh, policy? If America had a mechanism like that, would you be happy with that? Right. I, I think that's a really interesting idea. I'm trying to sort through my own thinking on it, to be frank. I, I think it's very attractive. Keeping people attached to their jobs is really important. In order to come back out of this, we're going to need to have as little damage done just in sort of bankruptcies and unemployment as possible. Um, my worry is, one, it may be a little bit too late. Two, I'm not sure about the institutional mechanisms in the United States for doing that. It requires the businesses to essentially advance the cash to people, knowing they'll be repaid by the government. Even if the government could get the money to them two months from now, they have to bridge people for two months. And a lot of these businesses are so low margin, I'm not sure they can do that. But um, it's really appealing. It's worth a lot of study. I'm a little bit worried about it being workable. I mean, it's very interesting, this conversation, isn't it? Because I... I don't know. I don't know what your views are on the universal basic income in normal times, but I don't think you're an advocate of it. But you're really saying the best way of doing this in the economic emergency we're in, or one very key plank of it, is something like a universal basic income. Yeah, I'm a skeptic of universal basic income in normal times. In fact, I did an Intelligence Squared debate on the topic. Uh, I was against it, and I won. Right. The, um, but, you know, I think in a crisis, normal economic rules don't apply. And I'm extremely suspicious of anyone that, you know, takes their ideology into a crisis. And, you know, you, you know, you like supply side tax cuts. Great. There's an argument for that in normal times. There's an argument against it in normal times. Clearly, that's not what's needed now. And so the people who just are using this to ride the same exact horse they've been riding for decades um, I think are generally not giving good advice. And beyond those you, you, um, direct cash payments, what do you think are the other policies now needed in the US? So targeted relief, like unemployment, nutrition, money for states, because they have balanced budget requirements in the United States, they're going to be spending a lot of the money for the response. The broad cash that we've been talking about And finally, whatever we can do for business continuity, of which um, loans to small business, workouts for large businesses like the airline industries, lend them money, you know, maybe even take a stake in their companies, try to get them through this, but make sure, you know, they're bearing some of the cost as well. I think those are the types of steps that that, uh, we need to be taking at least. We've been talking about this and we've not and I've not said to you, which I'm now about to say, you know, the the the, the sort of skeptic and maybe there aren't that many would say 
how much is this all going to cost? Just explain how we should think about the huge costs that government is inevitably going to face and necessarily face as a result of that. How should one, how do we think about this? How do you think about this as somebody who is the chair of the Council of Economic Advisors? Right. Well, the, the first thing to think about is there just will be a huge interruption in cash flow. You'll see that for workers. You'll see that for businesses. You'll see that for state and city governments. You'll see that for the federal government. The only way to get through that is borrowing. And the question right now is who is best able to borrow? Is it people? Is it businesses? Is it cities? Is it states? Or is it the federal government? The answer to that question is undoubtedly the federal government. There's still a lot of appetite for lending to the United States, for lending to the UK, to lending to European countries. Interest rates are quite low by historic standards. There are steps that all of our central banks can take to make sure those interest rates stay low. And so right now is a time uh, that we really, really don't want to worry ourselves about um, the fiscal side of this. In fact, I would say um, if all you care about is the deficit and the debt, you can't afford to worry very much about what needs to be done right now, because if we don't do it, you know, you could see economic destruction, and that would be a lot worse for our fiscal sustainability than any of the costs that we're undertaking. Last question. Um, if you, we don't know how long this virus is going to continue, but obviously there are estimates out there. We don't think it's going to kind of hopefully go on for years. Um, will it take a long time to recover from this economically? I think the answer is it depends. It depends partly on how long the virus lasts, but it also depends on what the policy measures that we put in place are. There's a lot of reasons to be worried that if we don't do anything, the economic damage could outlast the virus itself. Because you know, when people become unemployed, it's hard to find a new job. Businesses can go bankrupt. They can't go unbankrupt. And all of that takes a long time to reconstitute itself. Um, but to end on a hopeful note, I think countries around the world are taking increasingly um, serious measures on the health side, but also on the economic side. We're way ahead of where we were in 2008. Central banks have done way more than they had done at this stage of the crisis. Fiscal policy is on track to doing way more than it did at this stage in the crisis. And I think the whole world has a whatever-it-takes attitude and if there's anything that gives me hope um, on the economy, that would be it. Okay, Jason Thurman, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now, one of the first national economic responses we heard about was Denmark, and here to tell us about what the Danish government have done, how they managed to address it so quickly. We're going to speak to Berta Larsen, who is an associate professor of economics at Copenhagen Business School. Um, Berta, thanks for talking to us. And I wondered if you could start by explaining just what has been agreed to in, in Denmark on maintaining employment during the current crisis. Okay, so thanks for inviting me for this talk. Part of it is that you postpone some taxes, some BATs for the firm. Banks, they can lend out more money. That's been become possible. Your mortgage guarantees provided by the government so that firms can borrow more than they usually are able to. And then you compensate firms who would otherwise fire 
their workers by 75% of the the employees' wages uh, if they then decide not to fire. So, so the government the government pays seventy five percent of employees' wages, and and firms have to pick pick up the remaining twenty five percent. Right. If they can prove that they are doing much worse than they used to do, and otherwise, therefore, they would need to fire the workers, then they will actually compensate the firms. I wondered if you could talk to us a little about the the actual nuts and bolts of the agreement, how it how it happened. So, how how do unions and businesses and government go about negotiating these types of agreements? Is is it you know? I, I guess it's unprecedented to get something like this in place so quickly. Can you tell us a bit about how it came about? Yes, I think that the reason is that very fast you could see that this would be super expensive. So what you could estimate was um, a decrease in GDP by 45% by just sending back half of the workforce back home. And that corresponds to uh, by during the financial crisis in 2008-9, then you saw a decrease in GDP of 4.9%. So you see it's a huge, huge decrease in GDP. And I think everyone realised that, and therefore there was a need for an agreement, and it had to take place very fast. I know people already have become fired, and I know firms who have had to close, and so so it's uh, it's it just goes super fast. I mean, if you don't have any demand, then you have to send workers home. But it's also because in Denmark we have a tradition for these agreements between unions, employer organisations, and then the government, and you have every. Yeah, or every fourth year, you have these agreements where you um, where you set where you decide on working conditions and wages. We don't have a minimum wage law in Denmark. We have instead these negotiated wages and then uh, work uh, work condition working conditions for the workers, and uh, and therefore you're kind of used to reaching these agreements together. So the government is used to negotiating with the um, with the employer organisations and uh, and unions as well. Tell us, Berta, how quickly it was before, from the time that the coronavirus cases first started to to this agreement. The first negotiations between the employer organization and the unions, that actually happened super, super fast. It was just um, uh, about the day after that uh, you closed, you you decided on sending home the employees in the public sector and closing down the schools and... uh, and um, and the universities and so. Can you talk to us a little bit about the the Danish labour market? So I was surprised because of the way we think about the Scandinavian countries that it's it's quite a flexible labour market and 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 the way things are set up is it can potentially make unemployment worse in economic crises in ordinary circumstances. Can you tell us a little bit about that and then about how this particular agreement avoids that happening? Yeah. Uh, so you have, yeah, so the Danish market, Danish labor market is characterized by the flexible, uh, or the flexible curator model. So it works in the following way. So, uh, you can actually easily fire your workers. It's, uh, you rarely have to give them very long period of, uh, of severance payment. It's, it's very, very easy to fire. And, uh, so even me as an associate professor, at a uh, university, I um, I could also get fired. So you also even people with tenure, so professors with tenure, they can get fired. It's um, uh, on the other hand, if you then get fired, then you get receive unemployment insurance benefits, 
if you are insured. So it's actually the unemployment insurance system is a voluntary system, and um, and it's eighty percent of the employees they pay into an unemployment insurance fund. If you're not a member of an unemployment insurance fund, then you have social assistance. And uh, social assistance is relative high, but again, here you, if you have some wealth, you don't receive social assistance. It's quite high, the fraction of previous wage you can receive, unless you're a very high income worker like, uh, like me, for example, then I'm only going to receive a max, uh, uh, a max amount. So, of course, you have a very nice safety net, and that's the reason why even though people, they get unemployed and they quite easily can become fired from their firm, then uh, it's not that you're going to starve. But, of course, in a period like this, as I said, you might, have, uh, you might see a lot of firings. And, uh, and therefore, you know, suppose the unions and the employer organizations and the government, they know that, you, that it, it's going to be super costly if you have all these unemployed workers who need to be retrained and, uh, and firms who need to, which need to start up again. We're living in strange times, um, but I'm sort of curious to know what the public response to these economic measures that the government has introduced are and, and whether people are, are asking for ex- or expecting more from the government. I think some people are still expecting more. I think a lot of people are very happy about how fast this has, uh, these measures have become in place. So actually last night it was agreed upon, it was agreed upon a huge bill of, uh, 107 billion Danish kroner. So huge, huge support for, for, for the firms. And, um, and I think, some people think you should actually, the government should be willing to borrow even more money in order to, to do even more. I, th- I think there will be a need of more measures because first the lockdown was supposed to take place only until the 13th of March. I think no one at the moment believes that it's, it's, uh, the country is going to reopen at the 13th of March and therefore you will need even more packages, I think. Berta Larsson, thank you so much for telling us about the uh, the situation in Denmark. So we're going to talk about what it was like inside Number 10 during the 2008 financial crisis. And to talk about that with us, we have Stuart Wood, Lord Wood of Anfield, uh, who is a former advisor to Gordon Brown during that crisis. Uh, Stuart, hello. Good to have you back on the podcast. And Gordon Brown, I think it's fair to say, seems like a, a man of moods. So tell us, tell us about the mood that descended on number ten as the news of this started to to break. Well, G- Gordon sort of thought he'd seen it coming for a while. In a way, he did, and we, we I guess, a lot of us thought he was just being slightly pessimistic because it was his nature to be more pessimistic. But he, it, sometime around September two thousand eight, when the, a couple of banks had gone under and market started to get really worried he, he started gearing up um for a crisis response and it's weird because people I, I i worked for gordon brown for three years in really three very difficult years at number 10 and a lot of people say it must have been terrible you know it was all very difficult of course it was but in a way he was made for that moment there was a short time when gordon brown was exactly the right man for the moment i think he knew it sort of quite early on I think we knew it as his team. I mean, there was one night in October when everything was really, really starting to disintegrate. Banks were 
looking like they're going to fold left, right and centre. The markets were crashing. And one Friday night, about 10 o'clock, I was about to go home and I bumped into Gordon, who looked quite dishevelled and uh, who was working late as usual. And he said, can you come in the office for a minute? And I went in and he said, just to let you know, I think there's a decent chance that on Monday morning we'll have uh, troops in the street to stop people taking money out of the banks. But have a nice weekend. Um, (laughs) So... (laughs) He knew it was catastrophic, and, and he also in that in that week after that, he also knew that you you really only have one chance at persuading markets that you had a grip. And I think that in that sense, this crisis is a bit analogous to the financial crisis because you've got to in, you've got to inject confidence, and you've got to move people's behaviour by the confidence you project. And look, let's be honest; it's much more difficult for Boris Johnson now than it was for Gordon Brown. But there was a he had he knew that he had to have a response that surprised markets so that they would respond positively he did it once and it bought him more time domestically and then he, in a longer period he had to get a global international response to move the markets again but but that 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 kind of dynamic between the confidence and the rhetoric and the policy of the prime minister and the behavior of millions of people or in gordon's case the markets was absolutely crucial he had to stop people taking their money out of banks right you had yeah. to show that it was okay for you not to turn up at 6am and stand outside the bank. And, and and then there'd be pictures of people doing that. And then other people would think, well, if they're doing it, I must do it as well. And of course, that isn't a bit analogous to today, I'm afraid, because when it comes to you know supermarkets and things like that. So another thing that is has similarities now is Gordon weirdly had a different view about how to respond to the global crash in 2008 than most other leaders in the first in the first period but i think this is this is the interesting thing he, he knew that he knew that you had to essentially get intellectual consensus across countries for markets to be reassured that, that the solution was the right solution and i think that's the position we're at the moment is essentially that different countries are trying different things in response to the same crisis and a lot of the market's nervousness, let alone all, all of our nervousness, I think, is, is connected to that difference of approach in different countries. And how was, he, how was he able to do that then? What was it about Gordon Brown that meant he was the the right man for the time? How was he able to get the ear and then convince all those world leaders? I mean, unbelievable stubbornness and determination. <laughs> I mean, the, whatever, I mean, your, your listeners will have different views of Gordon, some terrible, some incredibly positive, but... He he had amazing and still has amazing stamina. He just has amazing stamina. And he, he was quite inventive. I mean, there was this thing called the G20, the Organization of 20 Countries in the World, which was basically invented to deal with an East Asian financial crash a few years earlier. It just so happened that Gordon, that the UK was the chair of that. And he said, right, this is the vehicle we're going to use to basically run the response. So he just used it for a purpose it wasn't really meant to be for. It's part of its, it's, sort of a, it's a kind of strange combination, isn't it, of intelligence, micromanagement, um, I knowing the detail, absolutely know all over the detail, sort of incredible stamina and incredible sort of obduracy and stubbornness. Yeah, it's all of those things. I'll tell you one of my favourite moments that he did. It was the Tuesday of, the, of the, the height of the crisis and we were preparing for Prime Minister's questions in the Cabinet room um and every half hour an hour or so the private secretary came in with a request from the royal bank of scotland to say look you've got half an hour to bail out the rbs because otherwise they're going to go under and the figures were going up by the billions each time you walked in the room and each time gordon sort of just sent the official away without a definitive answer and a few of us were kind of a bit worried about this and then late in the afternoon when the official came back in and said prime minister it really really is serious you know 
he said, right, we're going to bail them out. And here's the figure. Uh, and but we're going to announce it tomorrow morning because if you announce a, a massive bailout tomorrow at, at 7 a.m. in the morning, the markets think of it as strategy. If you announce it at six o'clock at night, it looks like panic. And I thought and he was completely right. And it, it, it didn't transform everything, but it gave us time. The markets were surprised in a positive way, responded well before another kind of bubble, you know, a rocky moment came along. But he had that instinct for when the right time was also to say something. And when and when the right time was to wait. And that judgment, I think, is really crucial in these kind of crises. When you think about what we're facing now, I mean, there's the two sides to the government response. There's the, the health and public safety response and then the economic response. What do you think there is to be learned from how Gordon Brown handled the, the, the financial crisis? I mean, it sounds like he was an extraordinary individual in in extraordinary times and you can't just sort of magic someone like that out of thin air what what what, i mean what what do you think we can take from it and apply to now well i mean in one way in one way this crisis is much more complicated than the the 2008 crash because the 2008 crash was was a financial was a banking crisis a financial crisis which had huge effects on people but the solution lay in the approach of the bank of england and the government to and international governments, of course, to that to that sector. This is a public health crisis, a work crisis, a schools crisis, an economic crisis. It's it's a really sort of multi-headed crisis compared to that. But I think a couple of things you can draw out. One is that there is no point in each country coming up with its own answer. You ha- you have to have global coordination, right? You ha- this is the quintessential globalization crisis, a pandemic that knows no borders. You absolutely have to have international cooperation. And so far, the thing that worries me most is how little effort there's been from any world leader to try and engender that. I think the second thing is Gordon understood that your answer for the banks had to be consistent with your answer to people worrying about their money, you know, their, their current accounts and their savings. You had to have an answer that where these things fitted together and made people behave in ways that were consistent. And Gordon, you know, the other the other day on the radio said that one of the problems with this coronavirus crisis is you can't ask people to stay at home and socially you know, segregate from each other if you don't have an answer to the question, how are you going to financially survive and how are you going to get meals sorted out? So that that sort of dovetailing of the different parts of the response, I think that is one serious lesson that can be learned from the 2008. But it is a much more complicated crisis. There's no doubt about it. Much more complicated. In terms of international action that needs to be taken, Stuart, what what do you think is is missing? I mean, it's clear from this podcast, uh, talking to Berta, talking to Jason, that we've got different approaches in Denmark to prop up people's wages, in the US to provide a more like a sort of uh, kind of universal payment to people. What, what's the international dimension of this? Is it, It's around propping up the banks, uh, the financial system? Well, I think bank, banks aren't the worry so much in this one. I think it's, 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 it's companies. It's particularly buying bonds of companies and, and, and direct intervention in supporting companies. And that's where the scale that comes from the world leaders getting together and announcing a coordinated package would really be market moving. And I think that that's the first thing. There's also a health aspect to this. I mean, obviously, there's a health aspect. It's a health crisis. Uh, I mean... We've got 35, apparently 35 to 40 different project teams working on a vaccine around the world. I think that a real worry amongst people that 
the country that gets there first, first won't think about any health breakthroughs being shared. There doesn't seem to be a commitment to the idea of this being something which the world will enjoy once you know teams in whatever country come forward with the answer. So I, so I think the sort of global cooperation on the, on the public health side is also important. And if you reflect, Stuart, on what went you've, – you've reflected quite a lot on what went right during the financial crisis – just say something a little bit about what you wish had been done during the financial crisis or in its aftermath by the Labour government that wasn't done. Uh, I, th- I think looking back, we probably didn't make the banks take stock enough of their responsibility and what went wrong. I think it should have been part of or almost a condition of um, sort of, you know, basically saving the banks from extinction, that there would be a sort of public you know, truth and reconciliation moment with the banks in the aftermath of it, which we've never really got to. We've had bits of it here and there. And I think that's, that's, quite, impo- that's quite important. I think long term, and I think this crisis will be different. The thing that I regret, and Ed, I think you do as well, you and I have talked about this a few times, is I think the crash was the moment for Gordon, as we emerged from it, to turn around to the country and say, look, we just about got through that, but we have to understand there is something wrong with the way our economy works if this kind of crisis can emerge. We need to rethink the way that we organise uh, the financial activities of our country and actually the economy more generally. So you, there is a, there is a recept- I think the Republic would have been receptive to a sort of, you know, a long-term lesson we need to learn moment after this. I think in this crisis, the public will definitely be receptive to that. It's also true to say, isn't it, that, and I was reflecting of this, a little bit on this in the introduction, that we are just so much more vulnerable as a country and individuals are so much more vulnerable because we have a rubbish safety net, because statutory sick pay is useless, because so many people have no savings. And that makes us a much less resilient country. Yeah, I'm afraid I'm afraid that's right. I think some of the some of the sort of economic liberal chickens are coming home to roost for us like the fact we have such a big gig economy so much informal work you know it's very difficult for governments to reach people through the levers they have when when there's such a big sort of sector which is so casual and so informal in our economy and that is that is a huge huge problem the most vulnerable people are actually the hardest to reach with government policy i mean that is that is a massive problem i think okay stuart would Lord Wood of Anfield, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. So what did you think then? Well, I mean, I know this sounds like a strange thing to say, but I I almost feel glad that 2008 happened. Yes, yes. Because at at least governments are willing to think in a very big way about how you you tackle an enormous crisis like this. Uh, I was was really into what Stuart said as well about really there needs to be some kind of global response at the minute we're all siloed in in our countries uh and it it does feel like there's got to be some kind of international not just scientific but but economic response to this i suppose i was really struck also by what jason Furman said about you know in the campaign they thought 50 billion then they thought 150 billion then 300 billion and then eventually was 800 billion and that you wouldn't regret doing too much in a crisis like this that you always tend to undershoot what is required. You, you know, the, the, the bias is not, oh, well, we went over the top in that intervention. The bias is always you don't quite realise how serious, how chronic the crisis is, the economic crisis is going to be. And I think if you think about where we were 10 days ago, we had the budget. 
And, you know, we talked about the budget, you know, people talked about the budget. I mean, it just feels like, you know, it feels like years ago, the yeah. budget now, doesn't it? Yeah. And it shows how, you know, I think, I think it sort of emphasized to me both the gravity of the situation and the need to really, to really, really get ahead of the curve. Email us, reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cheerful Podcast or search for our Facebook page, Reasons to be Cheerful Podcast. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And our cheerful person this week is Andrew Hunter-Murray. Hello. Second week running. (laughs) Okay, I've got got to admit something here. Yeah, time to fess up. He he found time in his busy schedule. He is now a Sunday Times best-selling author. He found time. He was the first time we interviewed him as well. Busy schedule to come and talk about his book. And due to there was a technical error. There was a technical error. I mean. Was it avoidable? I don't know. I mean, I could have pressed record. <laughs> yeah. And that would have I helped matters. I mean, it's literally unbelievable, isn't it? Yeah. It's Did not it the... ever happen to you before? You know full well it's happened to me about three times. <laughs> well, we've never had to re-record an Well, I gave though. Andrew the option. So what we could have done... It's had him as a... Yeah, 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 like we have done in the past. Yeah. Or I said, oh, do you want to come back and do it? And I think you enjoyed our company so much. It's lovely to be back. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> I don't think I missed saying anything last time, though. I don't think... Because I was wondering whether there was anything... I didn't leave kicking myself that I'd missed a chance to say say something so if we can exactly replicate exactly what happened last time because I, I, I feel that i was so excited to talk about your book yeah basically i did all the talking about it mm. when when you're the man who wrote it you know more, more than i and do. you forgot to switch on the microphone and i forgot to switch on the microphone <laughs> but your recommendation was so effusive and lovely i thought how is jeff going to re-bottle this lightning well, I, I will say what i said again which is i took it on holiday with me and i was jet lagged but i was happy to wake up at half three in the morning <laughs> because i was enjoying the book so much it's such a page turner can you Tell us, tell us what it's about. Yes, I can. Um, so it's a book set a few decades from now, and it's set in a world which has changed in one big respect. It's set in a world whose rotation has ground to a halt, uh, slowly over the course of about 10 years due to the catastrophe in the heavens. So today, and for the last few decades, half the Earth faces inwards towards the sun, and half faces 
outwards towards the cold, frozen universe. So, as you can imagine, things have changed completely. Life is unsupportable on the unlit side of the Earth. And even on the sunlit side of the Earth, much of it is far too hot to live. So, Britain is one of the very few countries in the narrow ring where the sun is high enough in the sky to grow crops but not so high that uh, that it's too hot to live. And what gave you the idea for it? Was it is it partly sort of turbocharged climate emergency? Is it uh, you know sort of played out or? I think so. Yeah, I, I wanted to find a way of writing about this kind of thing. Um, but I think if you write straightforward. Um, straightforward allegory then it can be seen as a bit preachy or a bit worthy or this kind of thing and i also knew i wanted to write a really exciting story and also a story about the kind of divisions in the world today so and i remember exactly where i was when the just the image dropped into my head of the earth hanging in space with its spin uh stopped as it were and then i just went away and immediately wanted to know what happens next what happens to politics what happens to geography all of it and a lot of it's sort of set in the corridors of power and, and you know, yeah. what, what, what the, the machinery of Whitehall would look like. And uh, yeah. it almost becomes quite Soviet. Yeah, it does. And it is set in a way, I know it's, you know, technically the year is 2059, but really it's set in a winter of discontent uh, era London. And um, that was the other fun thing was getting to write all the scenes of the city I've grown up in all my life and, and you know, ruined them you know the london eye is folded over and trailing into the thames nelson's column is cut off halfway up so there are all these because? vistas oh very i mean various decay over the last 40 years basically due to this world ending series oh, I see. Of, so it happens and then it plays out over 40 so, years so, no the book is set sort of 30 or 40 years after exactly yeah yeah so the right. slow begins in 2020 takes about a decade and then we so now yeah I mean it, and it begin the novel the novel's action takes place 30 years after that right. so the dust has really settled it's not a kind of um you know blockbustery thing set as the world slows down yeah. it's it's we're in the new reality at this point it's so good and <laughs> fiction is a new departure for you mm. because yes. you are the king <laughs> if I, is it, the king I, of I like him. Whatever you're going to say, yeah, yeah. I mean, pre- he's, he's certainly podcasting royalty. Po- king uh, of podcasting. Yeah. Now pe- people will know of QI. Yeah. People will know I'll Andrew from No Such Thing as a Fish. Yes. Which is a podcast that you and and some fellow researchers from QI started doing six seven years ago, yeah, yeah. and it's conquered the world. Uh, well, it's it's still going. That's the main thing, as you guys know. If you do a podcast and uh, like it, us, we're still going. It chimes. Uh, you have to keep doing it forever. Um, and, and and it's um, you know it's about the facts that you unearth in your research on yeah. QI. And last time we'd asked you for recent facts, and I thought maybe the, I think we should stop the, saying last time. Actually, well, I was just saying the good, I think the, the, good, I think the, the listeners are going to feel excluded. But the the good thing is we get new facts off him this time. So two weeks have elapsed since yeah. we last talked. Okay. So you must have learned new facts in the interim. Why didn't you start with saying why it's called No Such Thing as a Fish? Because yes. I think that is, when I talked to my children about mm. our interview last time, uh, that, was, <laughs> that was my starting point. So why is it called There's No Such Thing as a Fish? Okay, so the reason it gets that name is that actually there was a question we did on QI years and years ago, back when it was still Stephen Fry hosting it, uh, about whether there is such a thing as a fish or not. And the argument is, there's an argument that a lot of, you know, actual ocean scientists Mm. and and, and zoologists put forward, um, is that 
just because all the things that we call fish are in the same place, i.e. the sea, and just because they're vaguely um, long and thin and pointy and they've got scales, that does not mean they are very closely related. And in fact, the web of life in the ocean is so huge that a human is more closely related to a salmon than a salmon is to a sturgeon. You know, fish are so spread out and so uh, unrelated from each other that the fact of them sharing this environment they're in doesn't really and mean And a human it. is closer to a wasp than a cod is to a flounder. Pretty much, yeah. Is that correct? I, I, I mean, I can't give you chapter and yes. verse on that, right. but yeah, okay, why fine. not? Can I tell us about the mucus... <laughs> the mucus oh, yeah. fish because honestly this is like uh, i love the mucus fish so we last time mucus pajamas <laughs> that's right we were talking about uh the audiences at, at fish shows because they are so geeky they know way more than we do and often there are world experts in the thing and we were talking about a particular kind of fish whose name now escapes was it me. a parrotfish isn't it it was a parrotfish yes, yes. and we were covering the fact that the parrotfish every night makes itself a sleeping bag or a set of pyjamas out of its own mucus, sleeps in them for safety overnight, and then in the morning eats its pyjamas. Honestly, my children found it (laughs) disgusting, really. (laughs) Excuse me, I'm eating, said Sam, who's nine. Brilliant. Uh, It's a really good one. What's your sort of favourite ever fact? Mm, Yeah, female kangaroos have three vaginas. Favourite fact. Dead air follows. <laughs> <laughs> it's also the first QI fact I ever learned. I was told that in my interview. Why do, why do female kangaroos have three vaginas? <sighs> That's one of the great mysteries of life. I think, well, we know why they've got two of them. Because they can keep two joeys on the go at different stages of development. And I believe that the two vaginas are somehow helpful in them doing that. And that's also why female kangaroos, they can produce because they have a joey who might just be born, you know, the size of a jelly bean, and they've got another one which is hopping about a bit, they can produce different strengths of milk for the two different joeys. They can produce full fat from (gasps) one. And then semi-skimmed. And semi-skimmed from the other teat. I mean, that is, that honestly, that is a pretty good, don't you think that's a pretty good fact? It's amazing. That wasn't on the first interview. (laughs) But they're they're, they're huge in Australia. Have you ever done that fact? Honestly, this interview is even better than the first, (laughs) I promise. Have you you ever done that fact in Australia or do they just go, yeah, we know. That's the risk. Everyone in Australia knows about the three vaginas. It's carrying cold to Newcastle. With the, I guess there's a thing called the internet and that Mm. must make the research easier. Mm. How do you get, but you don't just do Google searches. How do you, how do you... Well, a lot or do of you just disappear down lots of rabbit holes and find interesting things through yeah, Google? Yeah, I mean, Google is a very good doorway, yeah. you know, and if you know what you're searching for and if you know where to look as well. Where do you go if you want to go deeper than Google? Um, there and, are a lot of... Past ama- beyond Wikipedia. Yeah, there are a lot of amazing single-issue websites and books, really. You know, there will be someone who collects corrugated iron and has a sample from every year of all the big corrugated iron production houses, or there are barbed wire enthusiasts, or there are people who know absolutely everything on a given subject. Okay, I've got one for you. Yeah. I think I might have said this on a previous episode, so Jeff, forgive <laughs> all me. Right. Why do football matches kick off at 3pm on a Saturday? No idea. Because the 1850 Factory Act mandated that the factory day would end on a Saturday at 2pm. That is a brilliant fact. That is a good fact. That's a great fact. Yeah. I was proud of it. 
And that's so that's Saturday. So that was sort and then of, by and then eighteen eighty three, I think the first the football so football league yeah. sort of properly formed and the kickoff were between three fifteen and three forty five, but but it sort of it paved the yeah. way for football in the afternoon and. And the combination of the churches and the factory owners were incredibly keen to they kind of formed teams because they thought it was a way of diverting working class people from drink and debauchery into right. into a sort of you know different pastime. That is really interesting. You could definitely get Ed on QI. I think so. You wouldn't need any I don't know. I think I'm not sure. I think <laughs> I might sort of I'm gonna lobby for it. I'm gonna lobby hard. Uh, the the book is out now. It's called The Last Day. Yay! By Andrew Hunter Murray. Uh, <laughs> Are we finished? I think we should keep going. Well, we're going to be back for a third interview next week, aren't we? <laughs> we did press record. <laughs> You'd be welcome. I could uh, ask you about the uh, snot pajamas again. Oh. I'm going to watch the program now. Please do listen to the podcast too. Though I think I'll listen to the podcast. Actually, it's an easier way in. Yeah, Andrew Hunter Murray. Thank you. Thanks, Great. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Right. Well, we're in the outro. Yeah, as Ed mentioned before, if you are bouncing off the walls a little bit, then we have got, you know, a whole archive of podcasts you can delve into, you know, hundreds of ideas and then the book club as well. So feel free to uh, feel feel free to explore. I think we should also say that if people have thoughts about the things they would like us to cover on this podcast, you know, particular things that you think are sort of relevant to the um, crisis, but maybe aren't being sufficiently covered in mainstream on the mainstream media uh, because you're there following other things, they can go to cheerfulpodcast.com. They can send us an email. We do, you know, please do. We want to hear from you about the things that you think we should be highlighting because i think we sort of recognize that you know this isn't going to be over tomorrow this is a we are in for a long haul here and you know we hope to provide some kind of service to help get people through this in our own little way and and obviously we want to hear from people about the things that they would like us to be talking about uh, we should thank our guests, Berta Larson, Jason Furman, and Lord Stuart Wood. And thanks too to Andrew Hunter Murray. His new book is called The Last Day. Emma Caution produced the podcast with backup and research by Joe Kenyon and Joel Pierce. Ed C produced our music. James Deacon did our idents. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. And our artwork is done by Henry Cole. He's been Ed Miliband. He's been Jeff Lloyd. And these have been Reasons to be Cheerful. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 